0: Welcome to The Waitlist, I'm Alex, I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to Mind, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further eight million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Some discussions in this episode include stories about individuals. Names and details have been changed to accommodate confidentiality. Sharon Bond is a systemic and family psychotherapist. She spent 15 years as a member of multidisciplinary team in a child and adolescent mental health service, where she worked in schools with families and teaching and school staff. She was a member of the training teams at the Tavistock Clinic and the Institute of Family Therapy. She's currently director of K-Ron Training School, which offers foundation and diploma level training in systemic practice. In this episode, we'll explore family therapy. Sharon, welcome to The Waitlist. Thank you. So at The Waitlist, we believe that mental health can feel like a taboo topic to many people and that talking about our own mental health can really chip away at that taboo. So each episode, I like to borrow a question from Alan Botton, which is, how are you mad? So Sharon, tell me, how are you mad?
1: I think it's an interesting question because it clearly makes clear that everyone's mad in their own way. There isn't a universal madness as a family therapist, one of the things I would want to do is then think about in what context does it show? So who, whose voice are you speaking with? If you say that you're mad, if that's something you say, then I'd want to know, is that your voice you're speaking with? Did someone else give you that label? Um, And if so, when? And if you do think you're mad, when did you start to have those ideas? When did you begin to believe that? What was happening? So I think it offers us really lots of room for exploration. (laughs) Great. Thank you.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about what family therapy is and also what systemic therapy is? Just explaining those two terms.
1: I think the best way to describe it is that it's a conversation where different members, and they don't have to be related, will come together um, because they have a concern about something. And it's systemic because we think that everyone in the system um makes a difference. So if I do something, or if I sneeze, someone else will also catch a cold. We're all interrelated. So that's the idea. We're looking at the system and how the system behaves and how the system allocates roles to people, um, and how they try to give it up and what happens when they do, which is generally when people come to see us.
0: So an example of like systemic therapy outside of families could involve a care worker or it could involve maybe the school potentially? Does that sound about right? Yeah. So it's not always the family
1: unit? It's not just the family unit. Um, when I worked in CAMS and AFTER, um, one of the things I did was set up work in schools. Now, mostly, traditionally, schools Call you in to see a student, a pupil, who they're having trouble with. What I did was set up um, a space where I saw families, and the family could be just mother and daughter, or mother and two or three children, or mother and father. It didn't matter who, and if the concern was a school school concern, and there was a teacher. That was involved, and I'd invite them to invite the teacher to the session. So we would be working together, looking at what the issues are, what the concerns are, whose concerns are they, and what do people, what have people done, and what do they want to do, and what stops them from doing what they want to do. So we'd explore all of that.
0: Could you share with us a bit more about? your own journey to becoming a family therapist?
1: I had no idea what family therapy was when I started, I've got to say. Um, but I used to work as an education social worker in schools um, and, and, and in people's homes. And I go in and I think the issue that I'm being asked to work with, although it's about the child's attendance, it was about the family. And what was happening in the family. So um, when I got the opportunity to get a job in a child and adolescent mental health service, I took that and then I started training um, to work with the families because I was sending families to CAMHS and often they weren't going. So I thought, well, let me go in and see.
0: So as a social worker, you were sending families to CAMS, And just for people that might not know, what is CAMS?
1: It's a child and adolescent mental health service. So that if, uh, when I started, you could refer yourself, but now you can't self-refer. So you might go to your GP or your school might say they're having trouble and they might say, go to, they might refer you to CAMS, but I think even that's not happening now. Mm. I think there's more schools having to buy in, such a lot has changed mm. since I've left.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more in terms of access a bit later. So, starting as a social worker, moving into training and becoming a family therapist, for those that might not know, what is the difference between what a social worker does and, and what a family
1: therapist might do? They are related, but um, a social worker is um, working with statute. It's a statutory service. um, And depending on what area you're in, there's a legal framework that you work within. Um, Psychotherapy is much more voluntary. So although we have a framework, so for instance, I belong to the Association of Family Therapy and the United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy. I think I've got it the right way around. (laughs) The UKCP. That's the one, yes. Um, And they have codes of practice that we have to follow um, and codes of ethics. So that would be where I'd look to if I'm working with families and clients of whether individuals or so on. Whereas as a social worker, there were legal requirements that are in statute.
0: And coming back to you as the family therapist, Sharon, over your many years of practice, what do you find are common presenting issues for families or indeed? Families and beyond?
1: Families usually come to see us when there's an issue. And usually it's a life cycle issue. So we're talking about a new baby being born into the family. If you're a couple and you have a new child, then there are issues around that around the relationships and adapting that people might then think. Maybe I can get some help here. Um, Or when children get older and they're not kind of acting in the way that the parents might hope, uh, they might be getting into trouble. So they'll come and see what we can do. Um, There might be unexpected things like loss of a job, loss of employment, and that'll upset the apple cart. And so people can get depressed or very anxious or any of those things. And So they, they might come to see us. They might come as a family or they might come as an individual because not everyone wants to come. But when we're working, we keep in mind that there are other members of the family who will be affected. So the questions we ask will invite other members into the room Even if they're not physically there, they're there in the person's thoughts. So we invite them to tell us what other members of the family might think, even about them coming, so that we work with that.
0: Interesting. I hadn't realised that you can kind of approach family therapy with individuals. And it makes sense to keep the family or systemic group in mind in, in that talking therapy. What I'm also hearing is, um, based on what you're saying, Sharon, many people come to something like family therapy off the back of change. Mm -hmm. How much do you see kind of change in in your practice as an initiator for therapy?
1: I think most people come because they notice things aren't the way they want them to be. And so they might not come and say, we want change. But when you start to talk about them... Um, what we do is look for patterns. What are the existing patterns? How are they changing? How do you want them to change? What are the resources you've got? What are some of the constraints? You know, who would, who your alliance is, if you like, in the family? So, we're getting them to explore the ideas just to open them up because generally, I believe they've got the answers. Uh, And we're not doing any anything surprising, but we might be putting it into words so that they can hear what it sounds like. Um, And one of the ways we do that is to work with a team. So I'm a family therapist. I trained working with a team of family therapists who are behind a one-way mirror, and so I might invite them into the room to share what they're hearing so we have multiple perspectives. They're not there to sort it out. They're just there to share what they're hearing to help me and to help the family, the clients. And then they leave the room and we continue talking, well, when we're using a mirror.
0: Mm, Interesting. So I would imagine having some of those other therapists, you know, other qualified professionals I suppose what I'm hearing is a space between people in that room. They're seeing things in a potentially different way to how people in the room are seeing things.
1: Exactly. Exactly. They are observers. They cannot comment until I invite them to. And they don't feel the emotion in the room if they're next door. So they have to come in and be very sensitive about what they feed back and very tentative because the idea is to be helpful to the family and to myself because we're a system then and they're another system. So they have to be mindful that they might be seeing things and hearing things and they can ask questions. Well, when Sharon said so-and-so-and-so, I wonder what she was thinking. Um, I'm wondering if the, the family found it helpful and who in the family found it helpful. So they're allowed to ask questions that the families might have but don't feel able to. But once they bring it out, it allows the family to com- comment.
0: It sort of sat in my mind. It sort of feels like those people out of the room have a remote where they've got an opportunity to press pause and investigate a little bit more. And I'm imagining that when you're in the room, in the same way that if you're in a dialogue with a friend or with your family, totally outside of therapy, probably an outsider's perspective will see things a little bit differently to how you kind of found an interaction, particularly if it's something emotionally charged, like an argument or something else.
1: Absolutely. And it sometimes helps to get the person who's quietest to come into the conversation, because not everyone, of course, comes comes in in the same way. So it serves a lot of um, purposes. I love working with the team because then I feel I don't have to like I'm talking with you, and I'll miss things. Um, whereas the t- the team behind the screen. <laughs> will notice things and come in and bring it in that could change the trajectory of the the conversation as well.
0: You've shared a little bit about, you know, if there's a team behind you, I would imagine it's not always the case that there's a team in family therapy. If somebody's considering perhaps going to family therapy for the first time, what other things could they expect? What's that kind of typical, if there is one, family therapy journey?
1: I don't think there is a typical, when I work, because I work independently, so if someone gets in touch and say, um, I think I need a therapist, sometimes I'll invite them to call and have a chat first, but I don't always do that. I might send an email with a leaflet saying what I do and how I do it uh, and how much it will cost and all the terms and conditions, so that they have it privately. Even if I talk to them, I'll send it. Because sometimes people are thinking about it. They don't don't want to act on it then. Because sometimes when you start thinking of something, you notice things changing anyway. So you think, oh, it's going to be all right. Don't want to act on it. So sometimes people don't want to act on it, but they've got the information. And I'll say, share it. If you're wanting to come on your own, Fine, but share it with other people who know you and, and begin to talk about it. That's if you want to, because not everyone wants to, because as you say, it's taboo and some people feel ashamed. So part of my task is to help them see that we're going to have a conversation. So one of the things I will do when people come, um, after I meet them at reception, I'll bring them up. Offer them a cup of tea or coffee because they're my guest um, and I had a really good um, teacher where I trained and one of the things he said is, um, people invite you into their lives, and that's a privilege, so you have to act respectfully in towards them. you can't assume you know, even though they say Or even though someone might send them and say, this is the reason, you've still got to bear in mind, they're inviting you into their lives.
0: Mm. And what an important invitation that is. Mm. Mm. So that feels like um, at the beginning, kind of helping um, people understand a bit more about really what it is. What happens if uh, they decide to move forward? With th- with family therapy, what what kind of things can they expect?
1: It's very hard to say this is what you might expect because it will depend on the family that comes. Let me give you an example. This was me in a school, um, and I worked there with a colleague. So we'd go in and we set it up. Families come and we'd see and. One family that was referred to, the little boy had been expelled from school, not expelled, just suspended for a few days, and he was back in school. But I was told that his behaviour was out of character. Um, so he came with his mum. He was about eight, he was mixed race. And Mum didn't understand why he'd done what he'd done because he'd had a fight with his best friend and he'd beaten him up quite badly. And so the school felt that they had no option but to exclude him. And they did that. Um, So when mum came, she came with him and his younger sister. Note, dad didn't come. And... When I work in schools, I try to work for as short a period as possible, and so I invited her to say what had happened and she she didn't know, and he didn't really know and didn't want to talk about it. But one of the things he did, he had his um he had a toy with him, Pink Panther, and Pink Panther spoke volumes who was dropping, being hit, being, he was speaking. And my colleague who was um, looking at this at one point, because we didn't have a screen, she was in the room. So I paused the conversation. I said, I'm going to speak to my colleague. And I turned and spoke to her and asked her what she was noticing, what she was thinking. And she said, I really got interested in Pink Panther. I think he had a lot to say. And I'm wondering whether we could invite him to talk more. And so in that way, she thought that this little boy, let's call him David. David knew Pink Panther very well. Maybe David will translate for us what Pink Panther was saying. And so we got Pink Panther through, we got Pink Panther to tell us what was happening for David. And he was able to tell us that his friend, that that a group of boys had been really nasty to him racially. Um, and that had upset him. And then his friend had joined in and he thought his friend was his friend that had excluded him from playing. And he was just miserable, so he took it out and his friend. His mum was just astounded. She knew nothing of it. And so we talked about what strategies he could have um, and who would help him find these strategies and so on. So we had a whole conversation out of Pink Panther. And when Pink Panther came back, um, because the stuffing had been knocked out of Pink Panther, when he came before. When Pink Panther came up, he was neatly sewn. So we had a conversation about how that happened. And it was a really good metaphor for looking at strategies and looking at who helped and how his parents helped and what his father could do and so on. So that's just an example. But as I say, it's it's different.
0: What a powerful image. I feel like it's a really good example as well of what you were saying at the beginning of the episode around bringing other people or indeed objects into uh, into the system, quote unquote, because uh, you never know what they might have to say and what their perspective is. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. You also said um, at the beginning of that question, Sharon, around in schools you prefer to do kind of shorter therapy. Can you explain a little bit about a kind of why that is in schools and what short means compared to to kind of other lengths of family therapy?
1: Okay. The reason is the way I'd set it up is I'd go in only for three hours every other week. And that means if people want to come and I stayed with a family all the time, that means no one else could. Come in all that time mistaken, so what I agreed was I'd do one family if they wanted to to stay for half a term, which is six weeks, but other families could come in for maybe two sessions, one to say what it is, and generally it didn't matter what it was, often two, maybe three sessions at work because there was time in between and. They then carried on. I would ask them to notice things, not necessarily to do anything with what they noticed until, unless they wanted to. And by noticing things, people would also see different ways they could do things. So, very simply, people would notice things and come back and say, Well, this has changed. And I'd ask them, how it happened and what they did, because you're looking for the resources people have. And so we might, then I might say, do you want to come back and tell me, or do you want to continue this way and maybe come back and tell me in four weeks time or something like that, so that they felt that they had the answers and they can come back and show me and tell me how things were changing. And that often worked very well.
0: So it sounds like six weeks. Are you saying six weeks is kind of perhaps on the longer term side?
1: Yeah, because that's half a term. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. That so, makes sense.
1: But if they wanted to go on longer, then we would. But the way I work, if people want to work, to come and only work with me for one session and they feel they've had enough to go on with their lives, then that's fine if they do two sessions, um, then that's fine. People decide. Some people, I've worked with people for four years, five years. So some people stay much longer. But I guess on average, it might be 12 months, 12 to 18 months. It's really
0: interesting. You're talking about you know, perhaps coming for two sessions or whatever that might be, and then coming back a few weeks or it sounds like even a few months later to kind of share progress. That feels quite different to what we hear about in terms of individual therapy, you know, the traditional kind of same time every week approach. Is that quite common across family therapy or is that your own kind of way to navigate with the th- families you meet?
1: That was the way I was trained. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who developed this idea um, that I follow, the Milan School of Family Therapy, they used to meet families monthly. So as to give them time. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons, but one of the things it does is give people time to try things out. So I might say, okay, I'm going to give you a task to do or an experiment to do. Um, I want you to maybe put aside half an hour a week, depending on whatever it is. You choose the day, and on that day, each week, for half an hour, the two of you might sit down and talk, or the family might sit down and have a conversation. And I want you to time it, and as soon as half an hour's up, you stop. Um, It doesn't matter if you want to continue or not. So it's very, very um, prescriptive. Mm. Some people do it. Some people do it differently. Some people said we thought about it, but we didn't. And that's great because that's all information because it gets you to begin to think with them what might have got in the way. Who wanted to? and who didn't. And so you can have quite a conversation um, about it. And some people say, well, we started and we forgot the time and we just kept talking. So it can go in many different ways. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's inviting them to do something they haven't done previously and see if they like it.
0: We hear a little bit about Uh, On the podcast about the word experiments. And obviously, as you know, I'm training, so I'm getting more familiar with the term and how I use it in my own practice as a student trainee. But I often think the word experiment feels quite scientific and it can, well, it conjures up in my mind anyway a bit of a science experiment with, you know, in a chemistry lab or something. But it doesn't necessarily mean that,
1: does it? No, it doesn't. And I'm glad you asked the question because um, I think language is very important. And so I will negotiate with my families what it is. So I've been listening to them. And if I think an experiment is the right language to use, then I might do that. Um, I might, I might, use another word and I'm trying to think about what the word is. Um, but I may, might use different words depending on what I'm hearing them say and what will fit for them. And if they say, oh, we want to do it this way, I'd say fine.
0: Mm, let's adapt to that. Yeah. One of the words in uh, class with my student peers that we've debated a few times is the word homework because some people have a bit of an allergic reaction to homework. Other people love it. Yes. So it sounds like experiment and homework are in that kind of similar field, aren't they? Of, well, does this work for you or does this not work for you?
1: Yes. And we do have a conversation about whether it's homework or it's something else. And what's what's what would suit, you know, because if if I say homework and that doesn't gel then it's going absolutely nowhere.
0: I'm wondering, when it comes to family therapy, some people might be wanting to understand how does that differ with something like couples therapy or individual therapy?
1: The short answer to that is it doesn't. (laughs) Because we're working with systems Um, and whether you're a a family as a system and operate in that way, you also come out and you work with friends. So if an individual comes to see me, then I'm thinking, what is the system in which you're located? Who are your friends? Who's who's in your network? And how is your coming related? to this because you're not coming. You, they're usually coming because something, as I say, is going wrong, whether it's in a relationship at work or a, a more intimate relationship or a sibling relationship or a relationship with a parent. And so I can think in terms of, well, who makes up this system? Um, how come you're coming now? what is it that's happening now that's brought you to see someone like me? And so I will be curious, and that will happen with couples as well. Sometimes couples want you to take sides. Um, I'm right, no, it's his fault. So you get caught in that, and then I will say to them, "Well, are you coming to me because you want a referee? or are you coming for another reason so when i'm feeling i'm being positioned as a referee i will say well it looks like you want me to put my referee hat on at the moment is that what you're thinking and so we we kind of use i use the terms and i ask what's doing what they're doing and I ask them who does that in their families. So I might be refereeing now, but if that's a usual pattern, then who does it? And where does it take them? What's the effect? So we begin to have a conversation that's related to what they want. Um and not all couples come because they want to stay together. Some come because they want to separate. So that's part of my task of finding out if they're coming is for them to stay together or to separate. Because if you've been in a relation for, for a long time and one person thinks it's time to go, they want to make it usually as easy as possible for the other person. I mean, the only time it's different is when I'm doing court work, in which case, then you know you're often working with conflict, but then you're also wanting to get the stories. It's not my job to put them back together. My job is to offer um the court recommendations. So
0: mm. and I would imagine across both families and couples, you said earlier around well, where did that come from or who did that come from? And Even in relationships, even if it was, you know, two people in a couple, so often that relationship is not isolated to those two people because of that wider system that you're talking about. (laughs) And I'm wondering if what you're saying is unpicking some of that wider system really helps, I I suppose, put a bit of a torchlight on what's actually going on. In that relationship, whether it's the family or whether it's a couple, it's the same.
1: Absolutely. One of the things I might do, I work not just with words, but with objects um, and stones and stuff like that. So I might ask them to use the stones because they're different shapes, different sizes, different weights and use the stones to map out the family. And who's where, and how that came to be, and with, you know, it gives you an opportunity to ask whether it's always been like that, how it's changed, how they'd like it to be. So we have quite a lot to work with, but it brings the network in, and you begin to see who's influential here, whose voice gets heard the most.
0: And when you're talking about stones, I suppose um, we could describe this as a, another tool. So like the experiments and like homework, kind of using things in the room, it could be stones or figurines other yeah. therapists would use to really paint a picture of what's going on. And I would imagine that in your practice, sometimes the placing of the stones based on family relationships or whatever the topic might be, Can sometimes be the first time that that person's really thought about, well, where is everyone and how do we all relate to each other?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, And yes, it's surprise. It's, It's the way that then they get information about their relationships and surprise. So when it's set out, I usually ask a question like, when you look at it, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? And then what emotions does that evoke? So that we go the gamut, because I don't know what they're thinking. One of the things I don't do is interpret. I look for meaning and their meaning. So we get um, different people's meanings coming into the room and different understandings emerging.
0: If there are people listening that feel that their own family or their own system... Um, or perhaps a family or, or a system they know could benefit from fam- family therapy. What steps could they do to explore that a bit further?
1: Going to the GPs often people's first port of call because some GPs also have therapists working there and sometimes systemic. I know in Newham, where I live, they used to have um, teams going in to do counselling um, uh, or to offer counselling therapy. Um, I know when I was director at another place that I trained, I set up um, therapy in that GP practice, so that there was systemic family therapists there that could offer a free service. Service was free to the GP, and the service was free to anyone coming. Um, so that might be one place. The other place is if they're thinking particularly of systemic or family therapy, to go to the Association of Family Therapy website. And look for a family therapist because they'll all be accredited. They'll all be be members of AFT or UKCP, and some of them will offer low cost therapy. So, um, I offer. I don't offer a sliding scale, but I know some people do. So I will say to people, look, I can recommend. I can put you in touch with and so I'll put them in touch with. The other thing is training schools. So for instance, the Institute of Family Therapy, they train s- systemic psychotherapists, but they also offer a service where people come along and say, this is what I can afford. Can I see a family therapist? And they will be offered an appointment to see a family therapist. And the family therapist Who's in training will have probably four therapists behind the screen as well and a supervisor. So there's always a supervisor with the team working with the family.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. So it sounds like there's a scale here. So at one end of the scale is private practice, where there is a cost, you know, paid for by um, by the family or by the couple. And I'd like to come back to costs in a second. It sounds like there's an opportunity to go to your GP and potentially request a referral. Mm -hmm. We mentioned at the beginning, talking around CAMS, how that referral system has changed over the years, potentially. Um, So there might be some in-betweens, I suppose, on that scale. So going to places like the Institute, family therapy perhaps for student low-cost therapy or even the association for family therapy the AFT did I say that right
1: uh yeah AFT AFT they don't they are an umbrella organization Mm -hmm. that accredit training and they they won't offer you a therapist um as they've got a list of therapists, mm-hmm. but they don't offer you a therapist. So you can have a look on their list.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a kind of directory, I suppose, you can yeah. think about of qualified, accredited family therapists. And I wanted to touch on a couple of things around accreditation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the beginning um, your affiliation with AFT, but also the UKCP. Mm-hmm. There are other um, bodies to look out for in terms of qualified therapists, like the BACP, and I can include all of this in the show notes. But it's really important, particularly in the UK, to ensure that we are looking out for those sorts of things when we're finding a therapist, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think so. And any therapist there has to be accredited. We are certainly every year you have your your registered. You have to register every year. And certainly with AFT, we have to say what we've been doing to keep up to date. How many clients we're seeing, what supervision we're getting, all of that, what SCPD is. So we have to go through that every, day, every year. And then there's a big registration every five years just to look at how you've been i um, working over those 5 years. So yes.
0: And you've mentioned supervision and kind of supervisors particularly in the in the student area but all therapists have supervisors. Yeah. And again from a language point of view we might think about the word supervisor as I don't know a team manager or um or a boss or something like that but in therapy it means something different doesn't
1: Absolutely. it? Absolutely. We we are clinical supervisors so we look at your Clinical work. Um, I often call myself, I know people get in touch and say, Will you be my supervisor? I call myself a consultant to make the distinction that I'm relying on you to bring the work that you want us to look at. And we will work with that. You mean you,
0: as in you, the therapist?
1: M- me as a supervisor because we also have to train. So it's a separate training to become a supervisor. So once you're a therapist, you then train as a supervisor, and then you go on the register. So people will come and say, can you offer me supervision? And I will say yes. But if I'm not working in the same place, which I'm not, I will call it consultation. Um and i will say especially if um like a local authority or an nhs trust is paying for the supervision i will then have a conversation with the person to say this is what will happen if i'm concerned about anything i will talk to you first and invite you to invite your manager because i've got no jurisdiction over the work that's brought. But if I am concerned, whether it's because of something ethical or um, usually it's to do with ethics.
0: And, you know, supervision is such an important part of the ethical framework for therapists, certainly in the UK. The UKCP and the BACP ensure that that's a requirement. I suppose for me in my training, the way I think about my supervisor is somebody that is. Decades ahead of me in terms of experience, Uh, my clients in placement are aware that I'm in supervision, as I'm sure all clients should be made aware within their contractual obligations. And it's an opportunity to ensure a little bit like the mirror that you have with your family therapist that's not happening in reality, but it's a little bit like that. That Mm -hmm. same sentiment of saying, this is what's going on with this client can I just check this out with you and check this perspective? And as a supervisor, your role would be to ensure that that therapist is acting ethically, yes. but also potentially that nothing's been missed, right? You have more experience and you're able to offer that different perspective with some space away from the therapy room.
1: Yeah. And my supervisor, who I've been with for, oh, shall week. 20-odd years, about 20 years she's been my supervisor. So she's grown with me as well. And so I know that if I'm concerned about something, that I can take it to her and say, well, I'm not sure whether I should have done this or I've done this. What do you think? And we'll talk it through so it's a really good space Mm.
0: and ultimately it's in the interest of that client so that family or couple or individual it's to help kind of propel the work forward in a way that puts that client at the center of the work so if people are considering going to family therapy we've heard a little bit about the process what can you share in terms of types of questions that would be okay to ask a therapist sometimes i feel like particularly when i speak to my friends when they find out i'm training they're like oh not sure about like what to say or what not to say can you shed any light on those first early introduction sessions some of the questions you've heard that you think might be helpful for others to hear
1: i i usually say well what would you like to know about me what would be helpful um and People will ask oh, all sorts of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't think, but as we start the conversation, then they will find things to ask. I, I know I'm not being helpful, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking, what, what do people ask? Do I have to come every week? Do I have to, uh, oh, I don't know.
0: It's kind of interesting that that's the answer to the question, because I think for me, when anyone asks me this question and, you know, underlining that I'm not a qualified therapist, but I would say two things. The first is accreditation, which we've spoken about. But the second thing I would say is building rapport. And sometimes that doesn't come from a question. It's kind of, you know, checking each other out yes. to see whether you can work together and have a productive, co-created Space.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I'm glad you said that because it is as you talk, um, people begin to feel you, whether you're warm enough for them, whether you understand what they're coming with, and can can just um I think be transparent. About what you know and what you don't know, mm-hmm. and what experience you have had mm-hmm. or not had. So, i I would always encourage people to talk to someone because you're bringing some, You're bringing your intimate self. Absolutely. And if you don't feel comfortable, then that's not the person for you. So I will always say to people, you know, we've had this conversation, I'll send you the information. Have a think. And then if you want to, then come back and let me know.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So, yeah. Mm.
0: And I think that's another important point is a therapist is not going to be offended if somebody comes to them and says, actually, I think I'm going to go with somebody else. If you have that opportunity, clearly in terms of referral, that's not always an option. But when it is an option, again, just anecdotally coming back to my friends, if one or two of them are in in therapy at the moment and perhaps not quite sure about their therapist. And these are confident people that, you know, are out in the world, very extroverted and they feel like, oh, but I couldn't possibly say it's not the therapist for me. And I'm like, God, oh, but you should you should be able to do that. And I think you're really underestimating the therapist if you think they can't handle that they want to go with someone else.
1: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. That goes with therapy, that goes with supervision. Cause when you said that, I remember someone who came to me for supervision and someone had suggested she came to me and we worked. She wasn't systemic, she had a different style and it just didn't gel. And she tried, she tried. And then she said to me, you know, I always get so anxious before I come to you. I'm second-guessing myself. Um, And I said, that doesn't sound good. That really doesn't sound good what is it that i'm doing that doesn't fit with you what if you had the ideal therapist supervisor for you who would it be or what would that therapist supervisor be like so we had that conversation and she said i like you but i'm going to go and that was that was it i'm still in touch with her so it wasn't like um You can't be right for everyone, That's what I say. So whether it's a therapist, whether it's a supervisor, if they're not right for you and you don't feel it, then Mm -hmm. leave. And they'll be right for someone
0: else. (laughs) I use the analogy of going to the hairdressers. So you wouldn't go back to the same hairdresser every time just because you didn't want to say that you don't like the haircut. And our mental health is much more important than our haircuts, arguably. I think.
1: (laughs) But you wouldn't do it. Absolutely. I think that's a nice analogy.
0: So we mentioned at the top of this episode that mental health can still feel like a taboo taboo topic to many. In your own life, if you're worried about someone and how they're doing, Mm -hmm. how do you approach that conversation? And can you share any tips with anyone listening?
1: I think it depends on who you are or the relationship is because we worry about people we know. um, So we have a little bit of knowledge about them. And one of the things you could do, I mean, if it's a work colleague, for instance, you could say, mind you, it's different now, but if you're kind of working in person, you could say, "Oh, I've made a cup of tea I've, I've really felt felt feel I needed one. I've made you one too. Let's take a break and just begin to chat. You know it's finding the mundane things because no one wants to sometimes that person doesn't even think they've got a mental health problem I, th- I think it's just such a it, it feels like often that there's something wrong. And sometimes you're worried about something or anxious about something. And maybe that's what happens when you find yourself in particular situations and you just need a place or someone to maybe listen. It doesn't necessarily need a referral. So it might be just opening that conversation with someone. And so if you notice it and you know that person, you know, whether they'll want a cup of tea, whether they'll sit down and chat and, or whether you can say, oh, you look a bit sad today. Um, you know, let's let's do this. I know that usually cheers you up and see the response because the feedback is what tells you where to go and what to do next.
0: Absolutely, And I think it's so important, you know, for people in particular that you know, we're not qualified. These are just conversations we're having in our daily lives. It's so important to just offer a space and not worry about, we've spoken before in this podcast about having to solve anything or having to have the answers. Offering the space in a cuppa can be really meaningful.
1: Absolutely. Because people often people want to be, to be seen and to feel, to feel valued. Um, and that does that so easily and then they'll know the next time they might make you a cup of tea and so you begin to get a relationship and it's a relationship that's important Mm -hmm. that makes difference
0: so my final question is based on what you've learned over the years on your own journey with therapy what's the one thing that you wish somebody had told you that you didn't know before and that you'd like to share with others now?
1: I don't know if it wasn't that I didn't know, but that I became aware of more and more and more, and that's the importance of talking with people, having relationships, conversations. That is, even if it's... Talking to someone in the supermarket, when I go to the supermarket and I'm checking out, I have a conversation with the checkout person because hearing your voice, practicing hearing your voice also makes it easier to talk to people. So for some people, just talking to strangers, but it's talking. And then you kind of hear your voice and you think, oh, I, that person responded to me. So maybe I'm not so stupid or I'm not so frightening or I'm not so whatever. But having the courage just to talk. Thank you for that. Thank you, Sharon. I
0: really appreciate you joining.
1: Thank you.